Now, we are in the book of Psalms at the moment, and this morning we're going to look at Psalm 133. So flick open to Psalm 133. And when you get there, just have a, keep your finger in Psalm 133, but just have a little cruise around the neighborhood of this psalm and check out some of the ones around it. And have a look at the psalms from 120 right through to 134 and see if you notice anything about them. If you, you see the psalm numbers, the main heading, and then underneath each one there is, a, there is a heading or a description of what the psalm's about, someone yell out what that says. It should be more or less the same thing through all of those. A song of ascents. Yeah. A-S-C-E-N-T. A song of ascents. And all of those psalms have the same heading. And this is a collection of psalms or songs within the book of Psalms, like a mini little collection, called the Songs of Ascents. And uh, the idea is, behind this, in, in Jerusalem, there were three main festivals every year uh, for the nation of Israel. And three times a year, what would happen is, fathers and sons would do everything they possibly could to try and get themselves to Jerusalem. No matter where they lived in Israel or beyond, they would try and make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to be there for these festivals that celebrated the, the identity of, of Israel as God's chosen people, celebrated certain events in the life of the nation. And so you would have three times a year masses of people converging on the city of Jerusalem. And these would be great times of celebration, although some of them would involve what we're going to do next weekend with fasting and all of these sorts of things. But it would bring uh, many, many people together, the fathers and sons of Israel coming together. So you can imagine the men and their boys setting out uh, from whatever town they happened to go to, and maybe they had a donkey or a horse or something like that, and many of them would have probably just walked and packed their bags for a few days and started on this pilgrimage through the dusty roads of Israel, wherever they were coming from, heading gradually towards the city of Jerusalem. And as they went, they would sing. They would sing songs. And these are the songs that we find in this section of the book of Psalms, called the Songs of Ascent. And they're called the Songs of Ascent because as you get closer to Jerusalem, when you're a couple of hours out by foot in almost any direction, you start going uphill because Jerusalem is at quite an altitude, nestled in a mountain range. And so these songs were songs the pilgrims would sing, songs for the road, while they were ascending their way toward Jerusalem. And so you'd be singing maybe a little ditty from one of these uh, songs, and then someone else, you know, another group of people from another village would be coming, and as you get closer and closer to Jerusalem, you might start hearing another chorus echoing back at you, and they would just begin coming together in unison, so that by the time everyone gets to Jerusalem, the idea is everyone's pretty much singing the same song. Everyone's singing a song as they enter the gates of Jerusalem and there's this great uh, triumphant mood and atmosphere and everyone's just united as one. That's the, that's the background of these psalms. And I think it helps to have that context in mind as you read any of these psalms in this section because there's a lot of Jerusalem language in there. There's a lot of Zion language. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem uh, is constructed or just south of Jerusalem really. And so those sorts of themes are coming through. We're off to Jerusalem, we're going to Zion, you know, it's kind of she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes kind of stuff. You know, everyone's just uh, singing away, whistling away. It's all just a jolly good time. So this is where the psalm fits in. Now, the interesting thing about Psalm 133, though, is that it is written, or at least attributed to, David. Now, David lived in Jerusalem. So he's not walking there. He's not on pilgrimage. He's already in the city. So what's going on here? And we can only speculate. 
But the most logical conclusion is that David is not singing this song as he travels to Jerusalem. He's writing it as he looks out, perhaps from his royal palace, at all of these pilgrims converging on the city of David, converging on Jerusalem, and walking up the mountain hills, the foothills of Jerusalem, and coming together as one. And you can imagine maybe some of the thoughts that are going through David's head uh, at a time like that, probably both before and after the whole incident that we looked at last week with Bathsheba, because this happened every single year. We don't know quite when this psalm was written, but here's David looking out at his fellow countrymen. And the Israelites so often were, were divided people. There was so much infighting and there was so much bickering among them, and they'd often take up sword against each other and curse each other, and they just didn't seem to be able to get along very well. And here you have this picture of fellow Jews, fellow Hebrews coming together, no longer carrying swords, but carrying the, the banner of their tribe and, and, and no longer taking cursing on their lips, but taking songs of praise and songs of unity to the God whom they all serve. And I imagine that would have really moved David's heart, so much so that he pens the words of Psalm 133. So, we are going to pretend this morning that we're pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem, all right? We're going to stand up and we're going to read together this Psalm, 133. There's only three verses, one of the shortest that we've got, okay? So, just take a big, deep breath. Everybody on your feet, and we'll read it. We'll have the words on the screen. I hope you can see that with the lights there. Here we go. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. It's Hermon, by the way, if you're interested. Not, not Mount Hermon, you know. I'm sure Hermon wouldn't have been happy about that, but it's, it's Hermon. So this is um, one of those psalms of ascent. It's a song of unity. It contains here some images that would have been perfectly clear and are perfectly clear to people of Jewish heritage and ancestry. But to us, a lot of this is a little bit fuzzy. The first verse isn't too bad, but after that, we start getting into things about oil poured on beards and Aaron and Mount Hermon and Zion. What on earth is all of this? So it takes a little bit of opening up. There's really two images that are going on here. The first one is this image of the oil and the beard. Now flick open to Exodus 30. Keep your finger in uh, Psalm 133. Exodus 30 is where we find a bit of detail. In Exodus 30, this is God talking to Moses. And in verse 22, uh, God gives Moses this little recipe. You didn't think the Bible was a recipe book, did you? But here's a little, re you might want to try this one out, your dinner's for eight or something. Um, verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, mmm, calamus, I don't even know what that is, 500 shekels of uh, cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of olive oil. Now that's not a hint of olive oil, oh, don't get that, if you're writing this down, don't get that wrong, this is a hint. 3.5 litres is a hin, right? So don't, you, you'll mess up the dimensions if you don't get that one right. A hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. 
It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law, the table and its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them, so they will be most holy, and whatever touches them will be holy. And then verse 30, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. So here's this image. God gives Moses a little recipe here, basically oil and spices. And he says, I want you to take this and pour it really over a whole lot of stuff. Pour it over all the articles of the the tabernacle and all the various furnishings therein. And then take some and pour it over the head of Aaron, who was the high priest. His role was to mediate between God and the people of Israel. Pour it over Aaron's head and the head of his sons. And so you can imagine um, this oil, and again, not just a little droplet, 3.5, that's like a dousing with oil. I mean, he just, like, this would have matted his hair down, you know, as Moses pours it over there, and the oil would have just run down Aaron's face and into probably his long, stringy beard, that oil oozing its way through his beard, and then there would have been so much of it, it would have fallen through onto the collar of his, uh, his priestly garb, his regal outfit. And this is kind of a bizarre ritual, but the idea behind it is not just that Moses is making Aaron feel nice and warm by pouring some, pouring some oil over him. There's a bit more going on here. The idea, as is borne out in verse 30, is that Moses is consecrating Aaron. And that idea of consecrating someone or something simply means to set them apart. There are two realms in Jewish thought, the realm of the common and the realm of the sacred. And that is an important dimension to maintain. To consecrate something is simply to remove it out of the realm of the common into the realm of the sacred. It can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be anything at all. It is to remove them from common usage and say, now they are dedicated to the service of Yahweh. God. Now they are His, now they are for divine purposes, not common purposes, and in fact they can no longer come in contact with the common and with the unclean, or else we've got problems. So the whole idea behind this consecrating oil is that through that ceremony, Aaron is being set apart, set apart from other Israelites, set apart from the entire nation, set apart to be an important mediatory role between God and Israel, to be God's spokesperson, in a sense, through the sacrificial role, through revealing God's will and God's law alongside Moses to the nation of Israel. He was no longer just a common Israelite. So that is the idea of the oil. Now, what is David doing coming back to Psalm 133 uh, and describing the unity of the Israelites coming together on Mount Zion as this consecrating oil poured down the beard of Aaron. It's easy for us just to assume that David's got this image that that the uh, unity is kind of this nice, warm, fuzzy thing, and it just makes you feel good, and it's kind of like oil drizzling down Aaron's beard, and it's just good to be together. There's far more going on than just that. Yes, it gives them a nice feeling to be together, but David is making an important point here theologically and saying it is the unity of these people, these Israelites, that sets them apart. This unity, this display of solidarity and oneness before God is actually marking Israel off from the nations. It's actually setting them apart and consecrating them and distinguishing them from other peoples. What other God could engender such unity from His people? This is the message 
Now, flick open to the New Testament, John 17. We're still in Jerusalem, but now no longer with David. This is Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, prays this incredible prayer from the Garden of Gethsemane. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if in the back of Jesus' mind here, of course you can't prove it, but in the back of his mind were the words of Psalm 133. Just the language is, is so similar, or at least the concept that he was drawing on, if not the specific psalm. John 17, in verse 20, Jesus prays this. My prayer is not for them alone, thinking of his immediate disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Can you see the pattern emerging here? Jesus is praying for the same thing that David was desiring, or at least saw before his eyes in Psalm 133, the unity of God's people. And the idea is that he's praying for this unity, not just so that God's people would come together, not just so we'd be united and make each other feel good and pat each other on the back, but so that the world might know, so that the world might believe. The purpose of the unity among people of God is so that we might be distinguished from the world, not just so that they would see us, but so they would be drawn to God by what they see. Through our unity, the point is that those who don't yet know God would see our oneness, see our solidarity in Christ, and look at it and say, man, there's something to that. There's something that I can't find it anywhere else. I can't get my hands on that. That unity. Nothing can bring people together like that in my life. Nothing can bring people together like that in my experience. I want that. And it is supposed to be an attractive thing. The whole idea of unity is not just so it would make us feel good. It is for those outside. It has a mission, purpose, even if we don't feel like it. This is the thing. This is one of the things I think Psalm 33 is saying to us today. Even if we don't feel like being particularly united in, in Christ, even if we don't happen to get along, even if we can't be bothered linking arms and being united in the cause of Christ, it's ultimately not even about us. It is about those who are watching us. It is about a watching world who desperately, desperately, desperately needs to see unity in the body of Christ, that they may be drawn to what they see, that they may be drawn to Christ through the unity and that demonstration of solidarity in Christ among his people. It's supposed to be a powerful, uh, luring like moths to a flame. And so the question comes, how far have we actually gone to uh, helping answer Jesus' prayer? In John 17, how far have we come in realizing the vision of Psalm 133? And if we're honest, it's not very far. If when you look at the church with a big C internationally, you know, disunity, division, splitting, lines being drawn, walls being constructed, lawsuits being undertaken, Christians marking themselves off one from another, and you just wonder sometimes what a watching world actually thinks of all this what people outside the church must be thinking of us when we continue to divide ourselves and polarize ourselves one from another. And the message of Psalm 133 is that it is time for the church to come together, not even for our own sake, but for the sake of the unbeliever, but for the sake of the world. 
And this is not just something that happens at the highest levels of Christian leadership. It, it certainly involves that. It certainly involves leaders in churches and denominations and Christian movements and groups of Christians around the world beginning to come together, beginning to realize that the cause of Christ is not served by this kind of infighting and bickering, but is served by demonstrations of unity. And interestingly and, and pleasingly, some of this is really starting to happen. It's encouraging to me that, that, that I, you do begin to see cracks in some of the walls that traditionally have been constructed between denominations, groups, and so on. There's new dialogue that's beginning to happen. There's new conversations that are starting to emerge. And I love that. I, I'm personally interested in that. I'm personally wanting to, to pursue that, to be a part of that. But it filters right down to the level of every one of us who name the name of Jesus. It filters down to the level of us asking ourselves, how do I treat that Christian brother or sister who's a bit different to me? You know, people, Christians maybe that, that dress differently to you. Christians maybe that worship a bit differently to you. In the, in the entire spectrum, we tend to assume the way we do it's the only right way and everyone else we kind of look at sideways. What about people that do occupy different points in the spectrum? More liturgical settings, more charismatic settings. Doesn't mean we need to agree on everything. Doesn't mean we need... Unity is not about uniformity. It's not doing absolutely everything the same way and it's not even buying wholesale into what the other is saying but it's being able to love and accept and respect and embrace and link arms for the cause of Christ and for the cause of a watching world. What about Christians that just think a bit differently to you about some things? They might just hold different opinions. I mean, we could name a whole range of issues. What about the one we talked about just a couple of weeks ago of Christians, whether they can or can't lose their salvation? To me, that issue is as much about how you treat people that think differently to you as it is about what you personally believe on that issue. That person that occupies the other side of the fence to you, whichever side you happen to sit on, how do you see them? Through gritted teeth? You know, looking them sideways, looking down your nose at them? Who are they to you? A full brother or sister in Christ, really? With the full same rights and privileges and everything else? Or are they sort of somehow a bit of an inferior? Yeah, they might make it to heaven, but they'll be on that side of heaven, and I'll be on this side of heaven. You know, friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You know, we just can't, and we have to work that out in practice, really practically, and retraining our minds to be able to say there's just a whole lot of things here that need to be subordinated to the cause of Christ. Let's focus on what unites us, not what divides us. Let's focus on the 99% of things that we have in common, not the 1% of things that we can spend eternity bickering over back and forwards. This is the type of unity that is like that consecrating oil that is setting us apart. It is then that a watching and waiting world will look at the church and finally, perhaps unbelievably, be able to say, there's something there that I can't get anywhere else. One of the things I love about the church, imagine a non-Christian saying, is their unity. How easily could your non-Christian friends say that right now? Probably the last thing in their mind, but that's the vision. That's the goal. It takes every single one of us to work at this with brothers and sisters in Christ that may not be part of this room because they may not be quite like us, whatever that means but they are no less and no less worthy to sit at the table of the Lord. Back to Psalm 133. There's another image here. In verse 3, David says, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Mount Hermon is a mountain in the north of Israel. It's the highest mountain, not only in Israel, but Israel, Lebanon, Syria combined, about 3,000 meters above sea level, very high. It's capped with snow most of the year, and it's renowned for huge dew vapors of, of cloud that, that sort of drift up and, and layer the mountain with dew right throughout the year. It's a very lush 
and green sort of place. Not particularly important in Israel's history, this mountain, it was just happened to be a big, big hill, but it was rich and lush and renowned for the, the covering of dew that it would receive. So in the north you have Mount Hermon, and then toward the south of Israel you have Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is where the psalm is being written, remember, this is where the pilgrims are coming. This is where David's writing from. And Mount Zion was incredibly important theologically to Israel. It was the dwelling place of God. It was where the tabernacle was. It was the center of their worship, their corporate life. But it wasn't a particularly nice place. It was, the problem. It was quite an arid sort of surrounding. I spent some time in Israel last year, and we traveled on one day down from the north of Israel, down right through the country, a very narrow strip of land, down through the south. So, and coming from the sort of Galilee region in the north through to the Judean region in the south, it really is a contrast. And you go from these lush green surroundings to pretty dry, arid kind of land. Pretty dusty, pretty desert-like surroundings. So here's David writing this psalm on Mount Zion, and he is picturing the unity among God's people as if it were this refreshing dew, like the kind of dew Mount Hermon gets up in the north, descending right here on Mount Zion and refreshing this barren mountain and softening this hard dirty ground. That is the picture. That's the metaphor. He's not just being a meteorologist with this. He's actually got a theological point to make. And that is that the unity of God's people, like a refreshing dew, refreshes the body of Christ. And it brings life. And it softens hard hearts. A few years ago, I, uh, at a church I used to attend, there was, there was a lady in this church, and I just had this nasty fallout with her. Uh, we were both involved in this project together that the church was running, and we ended up getting into a disagreement, and we were struggling away with each other. We just weren't seeing things eye to eye, and it sort of got ugly there for a while, and we just did not know how to repair this, and we just were kind of at an, at an impasse, really. And so I was kind of mad with her, and she was kind of mad with me, and, and we didn't really know where to go with it. So we got in one of the deacons from the church, Shame we don't have deacons. They're quite useful people, times like this. You got on the deacon, and uh, he sat down with us. First he met with me, and sort of heard my side of it, I guess, and uh, we worked through a few things. And then he met with her, I think, individually, and processed a few things. And then he mediated this session between the two of us. And he was very good. It was just a very gentle mediatory role where he would listen to one side and just try and bring that understanding. And we eventually did sort of manage to really hear each other out, really try and get inside the shoes of one another, see where we were coming from, agree to disagree on some issues. We certainly didn't walk away from that agreeing on every single point. But we got to the end and we'd managed to patch things up and we'd managed to restore the relationship and we'd managed to put some practical things in place that were going to help us move beyond where we were now. And we left as, as brother and sister in Christ. It was fantastic. And I remember at the end of that session, as we'd said everything really there was to say, and we're sitting across, and there was still, you know, that slightly tense air, and just slightly awkward, and you just kind of don't really know what to do. You've just spilled your guts, and you feel a bit silly, and everything else. And, and this, this deacon who was, who was sitting there, he just said, isn't this great? Isn't this refreshing? Just God's people coming together, making the effort to understand each other. It's healthy. It's refreshing for the body of Christ. And I don't set myself up as any great model of doing that kind of stuff because I'm not naturally a confrontational person. I don't find it easy, and I was trembling on that day. It was really, really tough. But he was right. It really was refreshing. And it is refreshing when that kind of thing happens, when people actually make the effort to understand each other, 
Actually make the effort to sit down across a table and come together and talk and reason together. It really does refresh not only them but the whole body of Christ. There really is something there that is so deep and rich and spiritual and I think what David was getting at in Psalm 133. I went a few weeks ago to listen to a seminar by one of the top business mediators in Australia. This guy, just that's what he does for a living. He mediates disputes and he's settled in, I think, in excess of $4 billion in corporate uh, work just bringing people together. And he said 80% of the conflict resolution process is achieving understanding. It's not getting settlements. It's not providing solutions. It's not getting people to sign on the bottom line and walk away. It is getting people to a place where they understand each other. It is making the effort for this party to climb inside the life and experience of the other party and start to see it their way. Start to see what are these people wanting, where have they come from, what are they feeling, what's driving them. And for these people to do the same, he said, that takes days. That takes hard work for you to just suddenly give up your rights and agenda and everything else and say, let me try and come around the other side of the table and have a look at this from where you're at. Let me just see where you are. Let me try and enter into your experience here and just play the game from your end. And he says, when you finally get to the point where people honestly achieve that understanding and they can clearly articulate back to one another where the other is coming from. He said when you get there, solutions just present themselves. It's amazing. Creative solutions that neither party even came to the table with just start to emerge because it's far more important what's going on in your own heart than it is on what bottom line you might have. And when you genuinely come with an attitude of wanting this to be a win-win and wanting to get a result and wanting to understand, things just start to emerge and then reconciliation can come on the back of understanding. And this, friends, is how it should be in the church. We should be leading the way with this kind of stuff. And I'd say to you this morning, if you are here and you have a grievance or a dispute or a misunderstanding, whatever it is, at whatever level with someone else, don't let the sun go down on that today. Don't leave here even without resolving before God that you will do something about it. Because when you refuse to do that, it not only ruptures your relationship, it does contaminate the body of Christ. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And as a church, it prevents that, that refreshing, I think, from coming. It's very true that we have that corporate identity. And when these things fester away, it impacts the whole body of Christ. But don't just do it for the church. Do it for your own walk with God. And do it for the sake of pursuing that unity. And when you do, I think you will find that hard as it is, awkward as it is, much as your heart's beating away and it's the least natural thing for most of us, you come through that tunnel of chaos out the other side and there is a refreshing. Even if only the refreshing of knowing that you stand within the will of God and have done your very best to reconcile and to understand and to seek to, to mend whatever wounds have been caused. That's the onus that is placed on us, I think, by this psalm, to come together. So that it might be said, the unity of Shaw Community Christian Church is like the dew of Hermon falling upon us, if we could apply the metaphor, refreshing the body of Christ, softening hard hearts, leading to growth and life among us. I think God brings growth sometimes. Sometimes I think he waits for us just to see how we're going to treat one another. John said in one of his epistles, if you harbor that hatred in your heart, you say you love God, but you're out of sync with your brother or your sister, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself because we cannot pursue an authentic relationship with God while we are refusing to work on the horizontal. Those always go hand in hand. 
So as you step back from this psalm, Psalm 133, and you sort of put it in the biblical context and the flow of the whole biblical story, you begin to see that today, we obviously no longer pilgrim to Jerusalem. We're not all walking to Mount Zion. But Jesus and the cross are the new Zion. Jesus is the new Jerusalem. Jesus is the new Mount Zion. He is the new place of pilgrimage where we come and we travel and we gaze upon the wonder of what was done for us. And as we do that, the cross, friends, should be a unifying force among us. It should pull us together. It should unite us as one so that there are no more, not that we don't have distinctions, but those are relativized by our identity in Christ. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we can link arms both for the sake of the world and our witness to it and for the sake of our own refreshing in Christ. And then, perhaps on that day, we'll truly be able to say with David, how good, how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Let's pray. Father, we long for that this morning. We do, and and we know that it's much more than just words. And we can be fired up about it now, but as we think even in this moment of those names and faces of people with whom we struggle, it's not a small task. And Father, we just ask you and, and beg from you the strength to really realize the vision that Psalm 133 holds before us, the unity of your people. Lord, we desire it for the cause of Christ, and we desire it for the refreshing of our own hearts. We ask that you'd empower us and motivate us to take whatever steps we need to today, whatever phone call needs to be made, text message needs to be sent, coffee meeting needs to be arranged. Lord, whatever we need to do to play our part in helping bring your people together, prompt us to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.